You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, uh, good morning. This passage is something else. Uh, if you want a day, rainy day, gloomy day passage, well, here it is. Uh, No one likes getting critiqued, uh, and our passage this morning is what you would call a scathing critique of humanity. Donald Barnhouse, who was a famous pastor up in Philly, called this passage the most horrible passage in the Bible. (laughs) Uh, Of course, he's not disagreeing with it, but he's noting that the content is very hard. So how do I possibly ease into this passage this morning? Well, here at King's Church, an illustration might help. About eight years ago, I purchased my dream car. It's going to be up on the screen. It will always be my dream car. (laughs) It was a 2012 Volkswagen Passat, and I just love this design, the, the boxy back. Does anyone have a Volkswagen in here? Okay, a couple of you. Praise the Lord. Uh, It's got great angles on the car. It's got this beautiful boxy back. When you think about what is a car, this is what you see. This is a car. Uh, Now, uh, lucky me, I paid it off a few years later, and for the last couple of years, for the most part, it kind of just sat on the street. But on New Year's Day this year, some guy decided to ram his Chevy Tahoe into my vehicle, essentially totaling the car, and also uh, Zane, if you're in the house, Zane's car as well. Now, lucky me, I did not purchase collision insurance. Uh, I was cheap. (laughs) And uh, let's just call a spade a spade. But uh, worse, the guy who hit my car is underinsured, which means he doesn't have enough money to cover the damage. So basically, as it stands, the projected payout I'll get, if anything, is very low, like nothing. You could say I got the short end of the stick. Uh, I set myself up maybe for a bad deal. I took a risk on not having collision insurance. And now since the guy's underinsured, I'm in a very rough spot. Now, why do I mention all that? Because the passage we're looking at this morning is similar to that, but way, way, way worse. Way worse. The critique will be way worse. It's that humanity has taken a risk. They've exchanged the glory of God, putting their lives around this amazing power, this faithful shepherd. They've exchanged the glory of God, and instead they've been cheap. They've been selfish, and now they're in a bad spot. They're in a a bad deal. Now, if I was a youth pastor, I would finish this analogy by saying something that I love. Get the insurance. You know, you you need the insurance. And of course, what is that insurance? Well, it's going to be up on the screen. There it is. Now, uh, <laughs> just a joke, but in all seriousness, that, that is kind of the point this morning. Uh, I know I said it's, it's a little bit cheesy, and we can't minimize Jesus to an insurance policy, but this passage is going to be bleak. It's convicting. But in light of all of that, in light of this scathing critique that the Apostle Paul is going to level on humanity, it's supposed to help us to see this morning our need for a Savior, our great need for a righteousness that comes from another, 
our need for someone who has loved us and has given himself up for us even while we were yet sinners. This is going to be hard, but the main idea of this morning, which is going to be up on the screen, is this. Worship and serve him only. Worship and serve him only. God, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Which means this morning, the main message, if you get anything out of this, is build your life, sacrifice for, follow, serve, Know Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the only God and is blessed forever. Amen. Now, my points are going to flow from the text. They're also going to be up on the screen here at King's Church. We believe the Bible. Uh, Many churches perhaps would skip over a text like this, but this morning we're going to dive in. The points, as you can see, are also somewhat convicting. And again, they flow right from the pages of Scripture. Number one, you know God, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Number two, you worship other gods, Romans 1, 21 through 23. And finally, Romans 1, 24 through 32, you can have what you want. That's the argument. You know God, you worship other gods, you can have what you want. So this is a very different sermon, so uh, let's dive in. Now, before we actually do that, uh, we're picking up right in the middle of chapter 1. Last week, you'll remember if you were here, we started the book of Romans. And in the the beginning of Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the gospel. He couldn't even get through his introduction without getting antsy about the gospel of God's grace. The gospel essentially is the heart of the Christian faith. It's the breath of fresh air when we think about a passage like this. It's what the Bible is all about. It's the message. It's good news, not good advice, we said. It's not at its core, do this or don't do this. That can't transform a person. The gospel is this is what's been done for you through Jesus Christ. This is what God the merciful has done through Jesus Christ. Receive that, have faith in that, trust in that this morning and let that transform you. It's all about the grace of God, right? We said last week, not about our works. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace, not by works, lest we should boast meaning we would take credit for it. We would take glory for it. Galatians even adds, if righteousness could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. And most important this morning, the gospel is about a free righteousness. It's about a free righteousness. Romans 1.17, where we ended last week, the, the, the verse leading into this passage this morning says, for in the gospel, it's really the, nut, the, the gospel in a nutshell. Most scholars and theologians would say this is the thesis statement of Romans. Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That means you get righteousness from faith, and it's something we live by. We walk not by sight, but by faith. Now, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness is something that we're all looking for, whether we know it or not. Everybody wants to be validated in some way. Everybody wants ultimate approval in some way, for ultimate affirmation, to know that we're right. We do it in a million different ways. We all want to be justified. But righteousness, at its core, is a moral category. It has to do with being good with being fair, with being just, with being honest, with being pure. God made us to be righteous, to be right, to live according to his design. But if you ever thought about God, if you've ever compared yourself to God, you realize pretty quickly you are not righteous. 
I am not righteous. We're all imperfect. We're all missing the mark, the Bible says. But the gospel is this, is that God steps in. And in Jesus Christ, he dies for our unrighteousness. He takes the penalty, the only real way we can ever have our record actually cleansed. And three days later, God raises him to life. And the gospel is this, is that God looks at his righteous life, his purity, his holiness, his obedience, his integrity, his honesty. And he says, God says, anyone who wants that righteousness can freely have it. Anyone who actually wants a real righteousness, a righteousness that is not tainted with self. It's from faith for faith. Which means if you're connected to Jesus Christ this morning, God Almighty looks at you, and because you're connected to his Son by his Spirit, he says, I affirm you, I validate you. In my court, I declare you not guilty, but instead righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you're connected to him by my Spirit. Second Corinthians says it like this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. So, why is this important? Why is this all important? Why is a free righteousness important? Is it just a, a get-out-of-hell-free card? Why is the gospel important? Well, as we begin this passage, Paul's going to answer that. He's going to answer that, and he's going to do it by offering a scathing critique of humanity as a whole a story that is repeated in every generation without fail. And so the critique begins, number one, you know God. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the first thing he's going to say here, and he, he takes on a little bit of a fire and brimstone preacher, is you need righteousness because God's wrath is already being poured out on the earth. We'll see here in just a second that God's wrath is not depicted as a lightning bolt or as a thunderbolt or as fl a flood or as fire falling from the sky. But God's wrath here in this passage is God saying, okay, you want to do what you want? Do it your way. Have it your way. And the result is chaos and heartbreak and pain and regret, wrath. I had a lighthearted illustration here about McDonald's. The motto is, have it, have it your way, but I'm going to pass on that. Uh, now, uh, uh, some of us, when we hear this concept of, of wrath, we twitch a bit in our, in our souls. We imagine someone going psycho and just kind of, kind of losing it. But in the Bible, God's wrath is holy. It's his response to anything in the world that's unjust, unfair, unloving, unholy. It's not a contradiction to his love. It is his love. It's a complement of his love. Because without wrath, his love would be meaningless. Without consequences, forgiveness means nothing. If everyone just gets a trophy, what's the point? If a judge never brings down the hammer, that's not good. God's wrath is awful. But it also shows us that we don't live in a morally neutral or random universe. It shows us that right and wrong are real objectively real, not things we create or that the majority gets to decide is right or wrong at any given time. It's bad, but it's also good, we might say. Now, notice one of the reasons God, God's wrath here in this passage is, is being revealed is because human beings, verse 18, are suppressing the truth. They're suppressing the truth, Paul says. 
Again, this is a scathing critique of humanity. Truth, of course, meaning the truth about God, the truth about yourself, the truth about reality, the truth about all things. Now, suppress means to push down. It means to try to, to squash. Think of it like you're in a pool and you have a beach ball and you're trying to push the beach ball down. You're trying to suppress it, to, to push it down. The passage goes on, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Unlike John Locke who said every human being starts with a blank slate, Christianity says you know God, you know he exists, everybody does. How? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, everybody knows God. But a lot of people don't want to know that God exists. Everybody knows, but not everybody wants to know. A good illustration of this is from World War II. American troops just got done liberating their first concentration camp in Ordruff, Germany. And before they got there, Nazi soldiers were trying to clean things up, to try to kind of hide the evidence there of all the evil that they had done. Well, they didn't get uh, it clean in time, we might say. And so the Americans got there, and they're absolutely horrified. They're shocked at the devastation they're seeing. A few hours later, General Patton shows up, and he's shocked as well. He's horrified. And the next day, Patton requests that the German mayor of Ordruff and his wife come down to the camp, and he assumes they must have known what was going on here. They must have known what was going on here. Patton eventually orders the mayor and uh, his wife and everybody in that nearby town to dig graves and to conduct funerals, and so they do that. But after that, Patton finds that the mayor and his wife killed themselves. His grief, their grief, was too much. But they left a note, and the note said this. We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. The point is, is there's things in this life we often know, but we don't want to know. We know, but we don't want to know. And Paul says in a similar way, this is where the world is at. Everybody knows God. But not everybody wants to know God. You can look out into the creation. You can see the sunset, the stars at night. You can think about your pre-programmed conscience. You can think about beauty and design and morality and joy and hope. And you know all of that speaks to a designer, to God's existence, his power, his authority over all things. Psalm 19 says it like this, the heavens are declaring the glory of God the skies are proclaiming the work of his hands. Paul says in light of this, in light of verse 20, therefore they are without excuse. Meaning quite bluntly, ignorance of God is never a defense for our sin. Sin is a deliberate act against the God we have always known is there. For anyone and everyone. It's a willful act that you've decided as you have suppressed the truth about God. There's no one on the last day that will be able to say, I just didn't know there was a God. We all know. We all know. That's the point. Moving on, this is going to get even more spicier. Don't shoot the messenger this morning. <laughs> point two, you worship other gods. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the critique continues. Not only is there a suppression of the real God, but because of the state of every human heart, there's a rejection of him and an exchange that'll happen for other options. It's what we call idolatry. Now, idolatry is basically worshiping something that's not God. Just because today somebody doesn't formally worship something doesn't mean they're not worshiping something. Everybody worships. Anthropologists say we are purpose people. We have to live for something. There has to be something that's captured our imagination. There has to be something that's captured our allegiance, something where we find our deepest hopes, the thing that can protect us from our deepest fears. Whatever that is, we live for that. We worship that. Now, of course, that's supposed to be God, but we can make this a person. We can make this a job. We can make this a status. We can make this a degree. We can make this a living situation. We can make this power. We can make this authority. Whatever. Usually it's a good thing that we hijack and we make it a God thing and then it becomes a bad thing. Let me just say that again. Usually an idol is a good thing that we hijack. We make it a God thing and it becomes a bad thing. An idol is essentially something we've elevated to the place of God in our lives, where he should be. We try to get our identity, our protection, our our salvation from this mundane world, from this idol. It's about significance as well. All those things we were built to find in God. Our significance, our protection, our greatest hopes, our greatest dreams, our salvation, we were meant to find in our creator. But when you think about idolatry, a lot of it actually is about control. And we see it in this passage. Essentially, in idolatry, people are confronted with the reality of God saying, you are not self-sufficient. In truth, you are completely dependent on me for everything. This is my world. You ultimately don't call the shots. I make the rules. That sounds a lot like we're not in control. That sounds like a world where we would need to be thankful to God for everything, to honor him in everything we have. And we don't like that. So we run, and we worship a god or gods that we can control. There's a story about a news anchor who once interviewed a famous atheist on live TV, and, you know, the, the anchor goes, they, they kind of go back and forth uh, with, with the atheist, and, and the, the, the anchor says, you know, you can believe in God, and, and, and the atheist says, oh, no, there's no God, and they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the anchor gets, gets frustrated. And so this, this anchor wants to win the the debate, and he, he wants to solve the problem. And so he turns to the audience and he says, okay, how many of you believe in God? And pretty much everybody in that audience raises their hands. And so he turns to his guest and he says, see? Now I mention that because I think the guest, I think the atheist actually missed a big opportunity. I think she could have won because what she should have done is taken her own poll. She should have said, okay, how many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who is a consuming fire. The God who says, no one can look on my face and live. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible who says, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood? To be honest, I don't think as many people would have raised their hands. And I think she could have turned to that anchor and said, see, the point is, in our nature, we want to be in control. We don't like a God who is completely in control. 
and so we worship other gods. We exchange the truth for a lie. Maybe we liberalize God. We say he's the God of love. He loves everybody. Love wins. So just live however you want. Or maybe we conservatize God. We say, no, no, no. God has his absolutes. He has his rules. And true faith is about following the rules. It's about obedience. Because when I'm obedient, then I'll be one of the righteous ones and God will take me into heaven. Now, but the problem with both of those kinds of gods is you're still in control. You're still in control. God as a God of love who lets you do whatever you want means you're still in the driver's seat. And a God who's just a demanding God who says if you'll obey him, you'll be one of the righteous ones and, and he'll take you into heaven, that's a God who owes you. You're not losing control there. But the truth is, is God is a consuming fire. He's the God who says no one can look on his face and live. And he says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the God who, if we want to relate to him, it's on the basis of his grace alone. So much so that we owe him everything. And this morning, if you're far from this God, come back to him. Repent. Trust in him. Believe in the God who has all the control, who has all the authority. Turn from yourself. Put your trust in this God who loves you, who's not, in, who's not only in control, but who loves you and who is kind and who is gracious, who cares for you, who gave himself for you. The passage is going to continue, and this will lead us to our third point this morning. You can have what you want. The argument, this kind of scathing critique continues, and we'll see it heat up quite a bit here. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this scathing critique is getting hotter and hotter, hotter. He says, people have made the choice and will make the choice to turn from God, to worship things that aren't God. And so the response here, Paul says, is wrath. Wrath that's being revealed now, verse 18. Now, how is it being revealed? Well, it's not lightning bolts. It's not floods. It's not fire from the sky. But it's in the fact that God says, okay, do what you want. Do what you want. Have all your lusts. Have all your desires. Receive all the consequences. It's in that phrase, he gave them up. Verse 24, he gave them up. We'll see it repeated again in verse 26. He gave them up. We'll see it again in verse 28. That phrase, gave up, actually means to surrender you to your enemies. To surrender you to your enemies. And who are your enemies? Well, as we'll see, the enemies are the lusts of our hearts. The idolatrous desires of our souls the disordered, self-centered, I am God wishes of our hearts. They're enemies because they lead us away from God. They lead us away from his peace. They enslave us. They lead us to pain. The point is, is the worst thing that God can do, and at the same time, the most just punishment that God can bring is to give us our deepest, strongest desires that are not from him. The worst possible thing that God can do. And at the same time, the most just punishment that God can bring on this side of eternity is to give us our dreams and our hopes that flow out of a heart that's not bowing to him. The worst possible thing God can do 
And the most just of punishment he can give us is our dream of a good life without him. Why? Because God knows where it'll lead. It'll lead to frustration. It'll lead to unraveling, to ultimately, hopefully, repentance. He wants to show us that a life that pushes him out of the center is not how it's supposed to be. A life of trying to live on our own terms won't work. Why? Because we were made to worship him. We were made to know him, to serve him, to have him in the center of our lives. We were made to know him and be known by him. But when we push him out of the center, life begins to unravel. And we see this as the passage continues. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in, in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now this is the clearest and longest passage in the Bible, the entire Bible, on homosexuality. And let me just say, as a, as a whole, as a church, as a whole, we've typically not done a good job talking about this uh, or even really talking uh, or caring for people who uh, identify as gay. And, and also, really, uh, I've noticed that every Christian I've talked to uh, ever who struggles with this says the same thing. Uh, they, they're struggling, they would say, with an unanswered prayer. They're struggling with an unanswered prayer. God, why won't you take this away from me? Meaning they would say even when they put God at the center, they still struggle with unwanted feelings. So regardless, just right off the, the bat, we're called to love. Uh, we're called to be people, no matter what, even if there's people we disagree with, that we're willing to die for them. We're willing to love them. But what Paul's saying here is the same thing he's saying before. In fact, it's the same thing Genesis chapter 3 is saying, the, the fall of, of human beings. He's saying, look, when we displaced God out of the center, things began to unravel. We began to be controlled by the lusts of our hearts, the idolatrous desires of our hearts, the disordered desires in our hearts, the self-centered I am God wishes of our hearts. And in this example, he's saying that one of the results of displacing God at the center could be that our sexual desires, sexual attractions, which of course are complicated, become unnatural. Now, from the Judeo-Christian perspective, they're unnatural because we believe God created human sexuality. And that human sexuality is between a man and a woman in marriage. In other words, sex is something that happens in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian and a professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University, said it was Romans 1, this passage, that actually brought her to Christ. She says the pastor who led her to faith in Christ at first refused to talk about sexuality directly. He told her that according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life, how she defined herself, how she sought fulfillment. She said, Romans 1 revealed my heart to me. She said, in Romans 1, Paul shows us that we all go through what Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. We all have to ask, who gets to declare what is good? Who is the Lord in my life, my desires or God's truth? She said, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for 
his glory. Her point, the primary issue is who is at the center of your life? Who is at the throne of your heart this morning? Who gets to call the shots? Who defines good? Who defines evil? Who actually is in control? Paul says humanity has pushed God out. We've turned, each and every one of us, and we're all dealing it within our own ways. He concludes with a final example, verse 28. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Idolatry that leads to immorality. It's a short step. An unraveling of one's life. Anger, bitterness, broken relationships, boasting, pride, dividing people, all of this flows from a heart that has displaced God. The critique ends, but we're left thinking about why the critique in the first place. Well, it's written to show us the bad deal, the short end of the stick, the rough spot we as humanity have put ourselves in. And to see why getting the righteousness of God, the gospel, salvation, is so important. Jesus Christ is the one who died for us, who paid the penalty for our sin, who takes the rebellion that we see in this passage so clearly, and he takes it on himself. And in the, in the mercy of God, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus in full, so much so that God can say, it is finished. It is finished that anyone who would trust him, who would put their faith in him, who would believe on him, God says you can have the very righteousness of God. Come to Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus is the one who completely lived for the glory of God at every moment of his life. He lived the perfect life. He lived the sinless life, the life that none of us have lived. And he went to the cross. And on the cross, he paid for the penalty of our sin. He defeats the power of sin and death in our life. Which means when you invite him into your life, he comes and he sits on the throne of your heart. He begins to break the slavery we have to our lusts, to our anger, to our pride. And instead, by his spirit, he works in love and peace and joy as he's making all things new. As we move to the Lord's Supper, let's reflect on what we've just talked about this morning. Let us think and meditate on the mercies that we have in our God. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.